0: Greetings, Grapple Fans, welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week in let me tell you something's little subcategory where myself Lorcan Mullen and my co-host Simon Cross take turns picking a match out of the history books of professional wrestling, and that archival choice will then be reappraised in the modern eye. And what are we looking at tonight, Simon? We've gone a little bit
1: extreme with our choice. We've gone to heatwave 1998, and we're watching a man who, ironically enough, has flames on his gear, Bam Bigelow bam, take on Taz. Yes. For the unofficial FTW title.
0: So, Keep Wave 98 is very often cited as the best pay-per-view that ECW ever put on. And there's at least one match on that show, and it was only a six-match show, that I would definitely want to consider for a future episode as well, between uh, Mike Awesome and Masato Tanaka. But what we're talking about today is Taz against Bam Bam Bigelow. He we went on a bit of a Taz kick recently, Simon, and that's what's inspired this choice, yes? Yes.
1: Still on a little bit of it, yeah. Obviously, he's recently re-emerged in the wrestling world. You know, he's been brought to the forefront of my mind as a result.
0: Mm. It's curious, actually, when you look back at it. I think you can see a lot of what became the indie wrestling scene of the early 2000s, post-ECW, post-Invasion, you know, the formulation of Ring of Honor and PWG and all those sort of things, in a lot of what Taz displayed... For example, there is a lot of Taz in Loki. What was more important was the influence, what Taz brought in was a much more explicit influence of MMA to pro wrestling. He popularized tapping out as a way of submitting within pro wrestling as well. Uh, Yeah. They allude to in this, that Bam Bam Bigelow, is he tapping or not? Uh, That was like a point of contention in their previous match at Living Dangerously that spurred on this subsequent rematch about or five months down the line uh, but also the incorporation of suplexes and taking japanese wrestling as a point of influence in what you're doing like so much of taz's arsenal is inspired by the new japan and uwfi styles of strong style wrestling uh, mixed with shoot style from uwfi so the incorporation yeah. of those suplexes like you said that uh, Hiroshi Hase was a direct influence in a lot of what he was doing with his suplexes as well. I think specifically the T-Bone Taz plex. And of course that was the other thing that made Taz unique was that he would not bridge. There would never be suplexes for pins. There would be suplexes for maximum pain, which you're now seeing in Paul Heyman's subsequent protege of Brock Lesnar. Yeah, he um, He's just going to suplex you into submission if nothing he's else. just going to chuck
1: you about and then like hit the finisher. He's not doing it as like a quick, like nimble way of getting advantage. I don't want to say there's no technique, but the technique behind it's from a different brand. Like it's, it's a different type.
0: Well, yeah, like there's no, need, I mean. there's no need for bridging. That's obviously a different yeah. kind of thing. So he's not trying to do like a perfect Kurt Hennig fisherman suplex where the bridge is fantastic and he's bridging on his toes because he's not trying to hold them for the pin. Yeah, battering them with his suplexes that then leaves them susceptible to his submission hold. The the Katsha or otherwise known as the Taz Mission. I forgot how thick he was, like, leg-wise. And just, yeah. like, he's a, he's a proper unit. He, he still used looks. to be because of yeah. how short he was, which was also another thing about the indie scene that they were... I mean, the thing is, Taz is even short for the indie scene. Like, yeah. Taz is barely... Uh, he's probably about Tyler Bate height. People like Brian Danielson and Loki would have a couple of inches on Taz. Mm. But because, like you say, he's thick, he squats that is just about believable that he can be this deadly killer. Because this was also at a time when UFC wasn't defined by weight classes either, and the dominant MMA fighter of the early years was Hoyce Gracie, who was yeah. about five foot eleven and 170 pounds, and he was beating guys <sighs> that were in different weight divisions to him in Dan Seven and Ken Shamrock and the like.
1: Yeah, but uh, Hoist Gracie was like, you know, a wizard, for want of a better term. But they
0: deliberately, I mean, the Gracies deliberately chose a smaller fighter. Like, they could have gone for Hickson, who's much bigger. Yeah. But they deliberately went for Hoist Gracie because they wanted to show how how superior their Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was, that size was ultimately overcome.
1: But, it wasn't immaterial, but it was nowhere near as important.
0: Yeah, But within that, though, Taz, whilst he does have those prototypical inspirations that the wrestlers on the indie scene would take and go further forward and that very ultra serious ring of honor style this is a sports presentation yeah but within ecw he was really an outlier whereas if he'd have dropped into ring of honor in 2003 he might not have been as good at the storytelling aspects of it as a lot of the other guys but he could have more matches with guys like samoa joe and brian danielson and christopher daniels and Loki. Oh. And, and CM Punk and Colt Cabana and, and all those guys, Nigel McGuinness, Chad Collier, and, and he would have fit within that world. But he wouldn't necessarily have been as good as some of the people that took it on and improved upon it. Maybe, maybe not. You know, it's it's up in the air. But like I said, that, that knowledge and that research, he, but he couldn't have those matches with anyone really in ECW outside of. Some brief ones that he when when he came back it was really only Chris Jericho that was left, like Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit yeah. had all left the promotion by that point. He'd worked with them but as the Tasmaniac character, not the ultra serious C style yeah. as character.
1: It's a shame really, because those like names you've listed, I'd love to have seen like Taz, take them on. Well, and did... his
0: WWF career was a bit... Well, I think because he debuted and then only a couple of weeks later, Chris Benoit, Perry, Saturn, D. Malenko and Eddie Guerrero all turn up. And they kind of steal Taz's thunder. And also he's, he's plugged in automatically with Kurt Angle, who even though they gave him the initial victory over Kurt Angle, I remember reading in the magazines when they did the house shows afterwards, it was always Kurt Angle that would beat Taz. Yeah. So Taz got lost in that shuffle very quickly and then because they were needed people for the hardcore championship, he became defined by that. And he just got lost in the shuffle, then he had an injury, put on some weight, and it just and and just his size difference then when you put him in the WWE was just too much for people. And just it mm-hmm. wasn't a a Vincent Man creation. So all those things coalesced together the basically by mid 2001 he wasn't really a wrestler anymore he was able to take like i said that knowledge that he had and the seriousness that he approached it allowed him to become that color commentator because he was able to give that perspective and that expertise that you'll Mm. see in this day now with someone like samoa joe they're able to give that color analyst role and do it differently you know And, and he just he seemed to get... Apparently, he became a lot easier to deal with when he suddenly didn't have to take himself so seriously. Yeah. Like, the story with Taz, like, he would be annoyed if people saw him laugh. Like, he, he kind of took the character super-duper seriously and he sort of believed his own hype, as they say. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean Maybe it took a chastening experience of going to the WWF when you're just not that yeah. guy anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, the crowd are really into him in this, and the size difference is a big factor as well, because Bam Bam is
0: a big dude. Yeah, but the thing with Bam Bam was also, he was like Vader in that mould that he was the big guy that could move. You know, there, yeah. there's a good reason that he was put in there with Lawrence Taylor for WrestleMania 11. He was big, so he kind of fit that bill of what the mainstream media would think a big nasty wrestler would look like. Yeah. But he could move, so that means he could probably work around the limitations that Lawrence Taylor has. And also he wasn't actually that high on the totem pole, so him losing to Lawrence Taylor didn't really hurt the Federation that much. But when he came, like his debut was organised and orchestrated by Paul Heyman back when he was like a nightclub promoter. Basically, the first event he ever promoted was the debut of Bam Bam Bigelow, and within a very short space of time, he was in the WWF. You know, they had—I don't know if you know this—the Bam Bam Bigelow was in the WWF briefly in the late '80s. I didn't know that. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's at WrestleMania Four. He's in the WWF Championship Tournament. that Randy Savage wins. Ah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he debuted, and they had this whole thing where he was built up for ages, and every single manager wanted him. And every single manager was making bids for him and talking about him and saying what they wanted. They'd done a similar thing with Randy Savage. But whereas when Randy Savage turned down all the managers and brought out Miss Elizabeth, but he remained a heel, Bam Bam Bigelow turned down all the managers. Kind of surprisingly, that made him a guy who looks like that with a head tattoo <clears throat> uh, became a baby face immediately and had Oliver Humperdink as his manager. Right. <laughs> yeah. the, highlight, the highlight of Bam Bim Bigelow's initial run was that he was in Hulk Hogan's team at the first ever Survivor Series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was him, Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff, Ken Patera, and one other guy who I can't remember off the top of my head against Andre the Giant, Rick Rude, King Kong Bundy, One Man Gang, and Butch Reed. And Hogan got counted out so that the final story of the match was bam bam bigelow on his own against three he was against bundy one man gang and andre and he was able to eliminate bundy and one man gang before finally falling to andre the giant so they obviously had big hopes for him yeah but just a combination of things injuries and everything and he was he he got knocked out the first round of the the wrestlemania four tournament and soon after that he was gone he had a really successful run in New Japan around that time as well. He had a tag team with the Big Van Vader. Won the IWGP tag team titles. He did have a brief run in WCW and, well, Jim Crockett promotions. Had a few with Barry Wyndham. Bounced around and then ended up finally coming back to the WWF in late 92, early 93, where he was a mainstay there for a couple of years afterwards. Obviously, he had the WrestleMania match. yeah, And then he left again. He kind of bounced out around all the places. And then he ended up in ECW. And, you know, he was a really big get for ECW he won the title briefly he swapped it back and forth with uh, Shane Douglas and he was like an either an enemy or an ally of Douglas throughout most of that run as well like he was part of the triple threat faction then he left then he rejoined them feuded, and that links into this yeah and then he sort of became he, so he was like the Arn Anderson to Douglas's Ric Flair and yeah. so Douglas essentially six him on Taz and Taz, at this point, is like an unstoppable killing machine. Like, he had been ever since he'd been brought back to... After he returned to the promotion and was repackaged. And he won the ECW TV title from Shane Douglas, and then Shane Douglas went on to win the world title, so there was always that tension underneath that, you know, the guy with the number two belt to beating the guy who has the number one belt for that number two belt. Yeah. So he's, Taz is constantly saying, I should be facing Shane Douglas for the world title, and that's... They... Paul Heyman loves to stretch a story out to the point that <laughs> then, you know, it becomes too little too late a lot of the time. And so they have Bam Bam Bigelow be basically the first person to properly beat Taz. Yeah. As close as you got to fair and square, even though there was like a little bit of Conflict. chicanery around it because they have him, he's got the, the Taz mission on, he's on, jumped on the back of Bigelow, he's got the Taz mission on. It looks like Bam Bam's tapping on his wrist, but the referee doesn't see that. He falls back ring f- collapses underneath them so there's just this hole in the ring this is before wwe did the same thing a couple of times i think they probably took this as an inspiration you know like a freak accidents occurred yeah. bigelow because he was on top gets a pin Taz gets well no bigelow comes like crawls out of the hole pulls taz up from out of the hole taz is out of it entirely Pins him. Wins the TV title. Very soon after that, drops it to Rob Van Dam, which kicks off Rob Van Damme's two-year run with the belts as well. Yeah. So that's what's led up to this map. Like, the whole thing about Taz is he takes himself very seriously. After Bigelow beats him, he comes out and he says, no excuses, you beat me, shake my hand. Yeah. He's got this whole big... Again, like, Ring of Honor kind of took that on as well. Like, the importance of shaking his hands. Like, when he beats Sabu at Barely Legal, he wanted to shake Sabu's hand and... That'd be the end of it, but that then led to a heel turn by Sabu on Taz. cool things about ECW was they had these defined characters. They always had a number, but they actually usually kept them out of their own little orbits, you know? Like, it was very mm. rare. Like During Taz's entire run, he basically almost never encountered Raven, or he almost never encountered the Sandman. Actually, when he goes to shake Bam Bam Bigelow's hand, it's in a match with the Sandman. Bigelow's about to wrestle the Sandman so Sandman stops Taz after he's leaving and says, I admire that. I don't like you, but yeah. I admire that. So Taz is really well defined by these relationships with Sabu, with Shane Douglas, and with Bam Bam Bigelow going into this one. But it's now like one of the reasons that now Taz doesn't have the TV title. He can concentrate on the world title. But again, Shane Douglas is putting that roadblock in front of him. You've got to get through Bam Bam Bigelow to get to me.
1: Yeah. And Shane let's just uh, just a quick aside on commentary he is really good in this match. I really things, enjoyed Shane's commentary. One of
0: the things that's really interesting when you look at 1998 Shane Douglas and then you look at 1999 Triple H where he's trying to like make that step towards becoming like proto game Triple H. Yeah. There are so many similarities not just in the way that they talk but the way that they dress. Shane Douglas is wearing like a hat, leather hats. And Triple H is wearing the exact same hats when he does that run. I don't know if Triple H was aware of it. It seems too similar, similar. for him not to have been at least aware of it. Whilst Shane Douglas had Francine, which was very different to having China, but it was still a similar kind of. It was a valet. It was well. a different
1: valet, but
0: yeah. But Shane Douglas is sort of that um, world champion. Well, I mean, the whole thing about Shane Douglas is he was defined in ECW as his hatred of Ric Flair and trying to be the. You know, this is where the true champion should have been like he was been the champion if it weren't for the politics. Yeah. So, you know, this is where he is. And I never really Shane, I got the presentation, but I was I've never seen a Shane Douglas match outside of maybe some of the stuff he did with Ricky Steamboat against the Hollywood Blondes that I loved. His finisher was a belly to belly suplex. And until Bailey, no one else has really ever done that well, you know. Yeah. But I, awesome. I I remember he had a match with Pitbull Number Two at the Barely Legal '97 that I fucking hated. Shane Douglas also was like the high school jock and everything. And like I said, it's like it's like the gang leader that's got his muscle, and that's what Bam Bam Bigelow is. Yeah. So we get to this match, and like I said, I'd never ever really got super into ECW. I liked it, but I never, I was never one of the kool aid drinkers, as as Eric Bischoff would accuse a lot of ECW fans of being. Mm. Uh, how about you what was always i mean i well obviously through hand, i guess Legendary yeah secondhand.
1: yeah i mean i'm six when when this match takes place for the first time i i didn't really know a lot of the original stuff truth be told and one of the things i'm looking forward to with this is is seeing some of it
0: so why did you specifically want to go with taz bigelow i, I i'd heard a lot about it's like where the,
1: where the first time specific spots happen.
0: The, the ring collapsing uh, and everything.
1: Yeah. Um, I've wanted to see more of Bam Bam because I know of his athleticism, mm. despite him being uh, a big man. And as you alluded to earlier, I'm currently like, you know, really into Taz at the minute. So I was wanting to see Taz at his peak.
0: Yeah, basically. Well, if you want to see an example of the future indie stylings of wrestling, you've got it within the first... 30 seconds of this match, where Bam uh, Bam hits Taz with a big powerbomb and Taz immediately pops up from it. Yeah. So it goes, fuck you! <laughs> and then just,
1: finger. like, <laughs> massive judo throw off the back of it as well. He, yeah. like, slings Bam around like he's a piece of luggage.
0: Yeah. But that was really, like, obviously he must have had a, a, a judo background as well. So it was all the MMA prom- mix, you know, he'd, like, he'd enter the ring with a towel wrapped around his head. Uh, he used to have this whole... Team Taz thing, because he was also the trainer at the ECW school uh, um, with Perry Saturn, and so they would take these trainees, and they'd be like his Team Taz, Accompany company, he was managed by Bill Alfonso to begin with, with the whistle, obviously that was where the whistle coach thing came from, uh, okay, then Alfonso abandoned him at barely legal, and went with Sabu and Rob Van Dam, yeah, so the whole presentation of it was like that, but this kind of goes in three distinct phases, really. The very early start on, the, on in the ring, where they don't bother with any kind of technical, it's like straight out, bam.
1: Just so smash into intended, each other. Smash yeah. into
0: each other. Then they go to the ramp, and then it's the brawl into the crowd, which is the commonplace ECW thing, where they just sort of wander around, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of great plan to it. Yeah. And then they get back into the ring, but it, but it really gets the crowd reacting and it plays up to the chaos of ECW. But I don't think it plays up to Taz's strengths, really, personally.
1: Well, no, no, but Taz, I think you use the term an outlier, not in terms of like just size, mm. but in terms of his style compared to the style that ECW is most synonymous with.
0: Mm.
1: He, he sort of has to go into foreign. Territory to like deal with Bam Bam because Bam Bam, Bam, Bam Bam has that 100 pound weight advantage and what, what nearly a foot taller, mm. so he's going to have a better chance of dictating the pace. And he's they're in the environment where that sort of thing's encouraged and fed off of them. And...
0: Well, also, it seems to be under false count anywhere rules, which I don't recall being announced. I don't know if that was what FTW rules were, but, but so now, FTW, point... um, I
1: don't think, I think it's more for the fact that we don't know what happened in the hole in the previous match. So I think that's why they're saying, false Count, anyway. I think
0: that's part of okay, it. Okay, maybe, yeah, maybe. Taz, in brief moments, then used that to actually apply submission holds on the outside. So at yeah. one point, he's got a cross-arm breaker on him, uh, which is erroneously announced as the Fujiwara. Like I said, just the brawling in the crowd is kind of... All I have is notes for the entire... And this like goes on for a good seven, eight minutes. Brawl in the crowd... Bigelow slips during attack. Taz, <laughs> Taz applies cross arm breaker. Like, it's a health and safety thing. It's just an issue, you know? Yeah. I mean, this, it, was uh, at, this was at the height of brawling in the crowd. You know, that's what Austin was doing in most of his matches. It, it was just a commonplace thing in ECW that you'd fight in the crowd. Easy way to
1: get the people going. Yeah. And again, that place is like the most fertile environment to like fit. Use that in your match and feed off of it.
0: Could have. There's no real planned spots there. It seems to me. It's yeah. just let's fight in the crowd. There's not even any kind of fun moments like when Brett. Like if we look at the WrestleMania 13 match, which was, had the big brawl in the crowd. Even little things like Austin trying to grab the concession stand to attack him. Yeah. You know. Even if that wasn't planned out, it was still kind of you know. It and also that was like a very brief sojourn in that match. Whereas, like I said, this takes up the bulk of the middle portion of the match. And to me, stuff's happening but not much happens, if you know what I mean. like People have been belted with chairs and stuff like that, but it's not... Yeah, and there's like the dive off
1: the ramp into the crowd.
0: Bigelow catches him, doesn't he? Yeah,
1: which is a great, like...
0: They tease Bigelow throwing Taz into the crowd, which is famously what he'd done with Spike Dudley. Yeah. Where the crowd then caught Spike Dudley and body surfed him around the crowd i get
1: where you're coming from because it's all there it's just there you know what i mean like there's not it doesn't
0: have it it like it's been a few days since i watched it it. i can't tell you a specific moment except for the bit that i've gotten marked down which is bigelow slips at one point Mm. and taz applies a submission hold
1: bit where they use the table, where Bammer uh, powerbomb has through the table. In... But,
0: that's, but that's in the latter portion. That's when, we, when we're going into the, ma- the the third act, which is then yeah. when they get it back into the ring. And it's like Bigelow has taken advantage, and Bigelow's in, in control when he brings it back into the ring. Like, say, he brings in the table, whips him into the table uh, after setting up in the corner.
1: But they're efficient with their table usage, because with that half... Intact yeah. table, uh, he gets T. Uh, Bam Bam gets t bone through it, which yeah. I, I I just like as a great. I hate that bit where they like uh, a table breaks and then they immediately have to get a new table. Yeah, which you see sometimes, and I get the safety reasons behind doing that, but the opportunity was there, and it just looks like yeah more in the moment as yeah a result. yeah it
0: looks more improvisationary, but it is still that kind of thing of just like th- there are some unique moves, but this is kind of like you could have put. Almost any ECW guys into this, and these would have been the spots that would have happened in the, in those matches, you know. Yeah, I
1: could, I could see, I could see the argument there. Like I
0: could see everything that Bam Bam Bigelow does in this, the Bubba Ray Dudley doing it, you know. Yeah. Mm. And everything that Taz does, you could see, like like there wouldn't have been that much different between a Bam Bam Bigelow and a Taz match, as there would be a Bubba Ray Dudley against Masato Tanaka match. Is that one of the reasons you never really got in to ECW? No, it was it was a combination of things. I never loved the presentation. I got why they did it, but I didn't enjoy it that much. And just honestly, the wrestlers were never that good in mm. a lot of ways. I'm sorry, but Balls Mahoney and Axel Rotten were fine, but they weren't exceptional. Like a lot of these guys hid their limitations by just relying on Garbage wrestling. And yeah, if you're gonna do that in five of the six matches on the card, it gets repetitive. It Look, yeah. I love the you know I love the D'Amelio Eddie Guerrero stuff. I love the and and I love the characters. Yeah, and in that sense, I did like the presentation in a different way. I always enjoyed the presentation of Sabu. The the present you know I bought the the hype around Taz and he did seem like a fucking badass um, until he comes to WWE and then just he can't stand out in the land of the giants as much. Yeah. It wasn't that I hated it. I just didn't think it was the best thing going, you know, you compare it to what the WWF has in budget presentations, storylines, wrestlers. It just looked like a better product. And ECW kind of looked, you know, like, look, I buy some ECW VHSs back in the day and, and friends would say it looked like I was boring, buying a porn. <laughs> you know? Yeah especially when they have names like Big Ass Extreme Bash and, yeah, ba- that, that's and Barely fits Legal. fits a uh,
1: few different categories, that type, those So I get,
0: I get why ECW... Like It's kind of like I like some heavy metal, but I don't like it as much as I like other genres of music. But I, but I also appreciate the, the musicianship behind heavy metal more than yeah. I maybe enjoy the music. So I appreciate the sacrifice and the passion that goes into ECW without necessarily ever enjoying the product as much. I do like elements of it, but like I said, Paul Heyman always had his limitations. This notion that he was a genius, I've never quite bought. He's a Russo with a better hit rate, to
1: me. Yeah, you know? uh, he strikes me as someone who needs a check and balance. So, sort I don't of know like... if
0: he needs a check and balance. I just think you kind of... He's kind of like a John Waters or someone like that, where he's like in his own unique niche, and he's got to be left to his own devices. Mm. And he'll present something that's unique... And you have to take it flaws and all, or like Kevin Smith or someone like that. You know, they have unique talents, but they don't have the whole package. But they kind of wouldn't even work within a corporate environment because then you get cop outs. Yeah. But but what? Although I do think a lot of what Raw did in recent year in the recent time when Paul Heyman was in charge, there were some good elements to it. Funnily enough, I always thought that in the build up, especially the Edge Randy Orton storyline, although. Apparently, that was a lot Edge and Randy Orton getting to just do what they want. Yeah. But the Edge promos that he would do in the Performance Center reminded me a lot of those ECW promos that they would be doing in Paul Heyman's mom's basement, Mm -hmm. where it was just, you know, they, they, they worked the silence to their advantage. And obviously, you got most famously, like, Steve Austin's promo, you know. Yeah. When Eric Bischoff told his secretary to tell her secretary... Which is one of my, that's one of my favorite opening lines to any promo ever. Because it just says so much with so few words. Mm. So I think, I think Paul Heyman has a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of advantages. But I do think he has blind spots. And I do think he has limitations. And he seems to have an obsession with cuckoldry. (laughs) Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's. um... I don't really approve of.
1: I mean, it's different strokes for different folks, but in don't put your storyline so much. Yeah. It Although keeps, the most recent one
0: keeps um, it at home.
1: Yeah, the the Maria and Mike Bennett stuff was entertaining. Although
0: I again I could see well that to be fair that was already in place, that gimmick was in place years before Paul Heyman took over. Because when he debuted, the whole thing was, he took his wife's name, you know. Yeah, so but was they, were, like they,
1: they were they, they made allusions, but they, it was like more like oh, they're so loved up, and they, they played off the fact that oh, he took her name. That's a bit weird. That's a bit like too romantic. Too. Like,
0: let's let's get back to the because we went to the Paul Paul Heyman's fantastic. Uh, like, he's a good cult leader. You know, there's a reason that ECW worked. He knew how to indoctrinate people. And yeah. all the guys that worked for him, you know, Raven would say, I'd go into an office thinking, I fucking hate this guy, I'm going to kill him. And leave it thinking, God, he's the greatest. <laughs> you know, like I said, there's the strengths and weaknesses to Paul Heyman's stuff. And it's all evident in the original ECW. One of the reasons that Heatwave stood out was because nearly every ECW pay-per-view after Barely Legal was pretty atrocious as far mm. as match quality went, because it's a lot harder to hide those weaknesses in a three-hour pay-per-view where you've just got to do match, 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 rather than a TV-packaged one-hour TV show where you can do promos and backstakes, highlights. sections. And... And... Like One of my favourite things that he did, because, uh, again, he like did this great thing about this ensemble of characters, but, like I said, kind of orbiting their own little worlds, at least the big main characters, like Tommy Dreamer, Raven, and all that. He yeah. did that really well. But also making an ensemble, like I said, like like what I love about late 80s WWF or um, Chikara, you know, in in that sort of dense universe. He'd do these really cool montage promos where they do it to Mizzaloo from Pulp Fiction, you know, and it would just be like little 20, 30 second bits from all the different characters talking about what's going to happen at the next show. It was like a great little montage, that MTV influence of it, you know? But like I said, it's a really cool presentation, but it's a little bit hollow inside. Just like this match has the cool couple of spots going through a table, really cool entrances, entertaining well-defined characters, but there's nothing in it. There's no nutrition to the meal, you know?
1: Yeah, it's just hollow.
0: Yeah. I've got eight bullet-pointed notes for this whole match. And it's like a standard-length match. I think it goes for like 13, 15 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Although that now is like a short, short match by today's standards. That's like a throwaway, yeah. But they, but they build it. But the ending as well is obviously what it's known for. And I think they knew at the end, I think everyone was anticipating they've got to follow up the, the ring. So instead of them going through the ring, it then turns into them going through the ramp. But, oh, so this is when Bigelow teases press slamming Taz into the crowd at this point. Yeah. Like the Spike Dudley thing. Uh, but then Taz turns it into like a DDT. So now instead of it being that he was on Taz's uh, Bigelow's back and like all the weight falls on top, it's kind of a bit more controlled, even though Bigelow is on top when they fall through. Yeah. You know.
1: And Bigelow crawls out first. Yeah. They, play up. they the knock fact it. That, like, yeah. Taz, even though Taz did the move, Taz landed.
0: Yeah. More of Taz went through the ramp than Bigelow. But then it's kind of like this is the Taz equivalent of the Undertaker sit-up. He just emerges from the rubble, chases Bigelow, jumps on his back, puts him in the Taz mission and then it's that thing whereas last time it was like was Bigelow tapping out before he fell out now it was was Bigelow tapping out or was he reaching for the ropes
1: yeah which Shane really like plays like Shane plays his part yeah in being like a a shit house well it's like
0: this idea this was the last microphone this was the last test Taz had before he you know he just had a clear path to Shane Douglas and they would finally meet five months later in January of 1999. Yeah, you have to pull the trigger a bit earlier sometimes. I mean, was there a pay per view the, between? That was another problem with Paul Heyman. He loved the chase, but yeah. like he held off and held off and held off. For example, on Rob Van Dam going for the world title, so that he has a two-year run as the TV champ, and then in the end, he breaks his leg, and has to forfeit the TV title and the feud that they had all genuinely done an angle to set up with him and Mike Awesome. Yeah. Killed off. This is it. Like, well, we we've made this point about fantasy booking and
1: real life booking. Like, you know, sometimes plans go astray, and you've jo- you've just yeah. got to strike what the iron's hot.
0: Yeah, the storyline I always wish I could have seen him tell. I, that was the question I was going to ask Paul Heyman if we when we went to his thing at the Manchester Comedy Store with Inside the Roads The question I've always wanted to ask Paul Heyman because he's a bit of a smart ass when you watch him in interviews. He's always trying to trip you up. He kind of want. He's a person that loves to show how smart he is. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Man, that's my own heart. But the question I've always wanted to ask Paul Heyman, what was the greatest ECW storyline you didn't get to tell? And I think it would have been either Rob Van Dam winning the title or, more likely, I think the storyline he had set up for 1999 with Terry Funk and Tommy Dreamer, where Terry Funk actually turned heel on Tommy Dreamer and aligned himself with Just Incredible. Yeah, That could have been an awesome storyline, but then Terry Funk got injured and they had to stop it
1: Because he's an old man.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a fun artifact, but it's not a great match, but it's a match with some great moments within it. Yeah, it's just something fun to watch. Which is what a lot of ECW matches were, in all honesty. yeah, I definitely want us to do a Rob Van Dam, Jerry Lynn match for this. Mm. Uh, It'd be fun to look at the Malenko Guerrero ones. Obviously, we've got to look at some Sabu. And I definitely want to do super crazy Yoshihiro Tajiri at some point as well.
1: Yes, the, the one night stand.
0: There's a reason that it burnt, you know, like, Ring of Honor has lasted three times the length that ECW did now at this point. Yeah. But I still think ECW might have had, well, actually, that's not entirely fair. Ring of Honor's had a huge impact as well, but ECW is like the sex pistols of pro wrestling. It was around for only a short spell of time, but everything changed because of it.
1: Yeah, I'm with
0: you. Texas has only really had like four good songs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you go into one of my well, one of my many musical blind spots at this point. But yeah, it's it's just fun. In summary, this this was well, again, just like
0: something like, fun. So took some people took from ECW and like splint off. Like from ECW, you got like half of it. Like it seemed like the hip element went with Ring of Honor, and the Taz element went with Ring of Honor. The Sandman rave element went with CZW. Yeah, and then it just sort of kept branching out and kept branching out from there it's like how from punk you got hardcore music like Black Flag but you also got like post-punk music like Joy Division and Talking Heads and New Order and, and all that sort of stuff you know it's kind of like you see the kernel of so many things within wrestling within ECW now. So that's as much yeah. as what makes it interesting to watch, maybe more so than the entertainment value of ECW itself. I don't think a lot of ECW has aged very well, personally. But its influence is, is felt to this day. It's a creative
1: ground zero.
0: Yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Okay. But anyway, that has been our discussion of a match and a surrounding phenomena, I suppose. Uh, It's going to be my pick next, and I am going with my first WWE pick. One of the rules that we have for this is that there has to be different promotions, and only after five episodes can we then go back. And that means our personal five, but also, like... So, basically, Simon's got to wait five choices before he can do another ECW match, whereas I've got five episodes. So, Simon could do an ECW match for episode 16, if he wanted to, and I could do it for episode 11. Going forward. Not necessarily that's not necessarily what's gonna happen for episode eleven or sixteen, but that's the rules. Same yeah. with like I can't pick a match with Taz or Bam Bam Bigelow now for the next five, and, and Simon can't do that as well. So those are the those are some of the rules we're incorporating for match of the week. But we are now five episodes past Simon's pick of Floyd Mayweather and the big show. So I am gonna go with my first WWE pick. And I don't know if you would call this a hidden gem or not, but it's a match I've always had a lot of love for. And I've always wanted to talk a bit more about it. And I think it's a match that maybe doesn't get the um, praise it deserves for what came after it. I am talking about Extreme Rules 2012. Two out of three falls for the World Heavyweight Championship. The rematch from the 18-second WrestleMania 28 opener between defending champion Sheamus and former champion and leader of a nascent movement, it would appear, Daniel Bryan. You're excited for this one, aren't you, sir?
1: I. It's one of those I loved at the time, and it has grown on me. Like ever since, I, I think it's one of those that ages like a fine wine. Mm. This match.
0: Well, I, we'll talk about it. Like it, it kind of got overshadowed on the night by a bigger match, but not necessarily a better match. But we'll we'll talk about that in that episode. But if people want to get in touch with you in the interim, Simon, how can they do so?
1: Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the sheets to the wind that half this crowd seems to be already.
0: <laughs> My name's Lorcan Munn and that's L O R C A N M U L L A for accident and emergency, N for negligent health and safety requirements. <laughs> That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd, if you at gmail.com at the end of Lorcan Mullen, that's my email address. Get in touch with us on lmtyspod at gmail.com or lmtyspod on Twitter. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something and have a great time until the next time. Until the next time.